1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then Acts 2, the beginning of verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And then Acts 2, 47, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you for uh, this occasion. We are uh, again in need of your help, the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, wonderful truths are to be found and gleaned from your word, and yet apart from your help, they remain closed off to us. So please help us, guide us, uh, work, work with our minds that we would be able to give our attention to what is said. And we pray that through all of this, you would glorify yourself in and through the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, the short title you can see there on the cover of the book, The Glory of a True Church, is that's going to be the title that we're going to use for this study. If you look at the top of page two, we have the original title that was given to this work, uh, which obviously wouldn't make for nearly a, a, as cute of a cover as we have here. Uh, the glory and ornament of a true gospel constituted church being a brief display of the discipline of the Church of Christ, formerly meeting at Couriers Hall near Cripplegate, and now meeting at Tallow Chandler's Hall upon Dowgate Hill, London, over whom the Holy Ghost hath made me an overseer. So you can see why we might want to shorten that and make it a little more concise and get to the point, the glory of a true church. Now what I want to do this evening is begin by considering this notion of glory and then move into the subject of this book. Because what is often the case with these uh, older writings, and especially these authors that will use a title that might sound strange to us, is we might go into it not really understanding what, what is the purpose of this book. Why is it written? Uh, we were talking at lunch today about another a particular Baptist work from around the same time period, and the title of it was The Temple Repaired. Now, obviously, there was a longer title, but that was the main title, The Temple Repaired. You might think, what in the world is, is this about? Well, when you read it, it's about the institution and upkeep of the preaching ministry of a church, along with sort of a guide on how to take the Scriptures and put together a sermon and preach it. But it was entitled, The Temple Repaired. Now, if, if you don't have much concern in temple building, you might think, well, I don't need to read that. But if you are concerned about the ministry of the Word in the church, you would say, that's something I want to read. I think it's helpful that we get in our minds what Keech is trying to do here, and that longer title sort of helps us, a brief display of the discipline of the church, formerly meeting at, at such and such a place and now meeting elsewhere. In other words, the church where he pastored. I don't know if, if we'll get to a biographical sketch of Keech or not. I might do that at some point, but um, Benjamin Keech uh, be became a particular Baptist, um, I believe planted this particular church, and this church still exists to this day. Not in the same place, not in the same building, but you, this congregation is still in existence, um, which is pretty impressive. Uh, the pastor of this church today is a, nam a man named Peter Masters. Now, if some of you know where Peter Masters is, he's at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Between Keech and Peter Masters were men like John Gill, Charles Spurgeon, uh, I believe John Rippon was another one. Very well-known names have pastored this church, and it's still in existence to this day. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what Keech is doing. He's displaying the discipline of this church where he pastors, but there's obviously more to it than that. Um, but he calls it the glory of a true church, and, and that's why I think if we begin here, it'll help us to understand what he's trying to do, what he has in mind. So we begin with this notion of glory. What is glory? Glory, originally and linguistically, has to do with the concept of weight and value. Historically, glory was the way you would quantify the value of a thing 
by weighing it. And, and some of us even remember a time when you would, you know, try to lift a television set off the floor and you couldn't move it. And if you went to the store and you saw one of these newfangled TVs that anybody could just pick up and carry around, you'd say, this thing's a piece of trash. It doesn't even weigh 200 pounds. Well, and now, of course, we've moved to the point where they're, they're made out of basically plastic. That, that comes from the idea that historically, if something was a value, you knew that because it was heavy. It was made of substance. And that's the idea behind glory. It's the, it's the weight of something that shows you its value. If it's heavier, it has more value. If it's lighter, it's of less value. But the idea of glory became, came to mean more than just weight. And it came to extend beyond just weighing things. But it never left behind this concept of estimating value or worth or usefulness of something. And the word glory eventually came to be associated with Things like brightness and splendor or magnificence or beauty, but always associated with the idea of value or worth or uh, usefulness. So, so no longer was the idea necessarily, well, it's valuable because it's heavy, but you might say it's valuable because it's beautiful. I can see in that thing a beauty, a splendor, a, and what you would see is the glory the showing forth of that thing. So we could define glory this way. Glory is some outward, quantifiable, usually visible manifestation of the essential and often less visible value of a thing. Some outward, quantifiable, usually visible manifestation of the essential value of a thing. So something that you can see on the outside that tells you something about the essential value of that thing on the inside. That's glory. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Proverbs 14, 28. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king. Now think about that. You might look at a king. You might say he doesn't look like much. He's not very tall. He's not very strong. His muscles are not very big. What is this king worth? Well, we don't measure him by looking at him. Scripture says, count his people. How large is his dominion? That's how you would measure the, the essential value of that king, the expanse of his dominion. Count his people. It may not look like much, but his kingdom will tell the true value. And yet, speaking of lilies, our Lord said in Matthew 6, 29, even Solomon, a king, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Well, what was Solomon's glory? Well, it would be the sum total of all of his royal attainments. The, the outfits he wore, the crown that he wore, the house that he lived in and the houses that he built, the temple that he built, all of that, his wisdom, his gold, his silver, all of that, you could look at all of that and you would say, Solomon must be quite a king. And yet the Lord looks at a little flower and says, that little flower is arrayed more gloriously than even Solomon himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, If a woman has long hair, it is her glory. What's he saying? He's saying that a woman's hair is the outward manifestation of what she is as designed by God. A woman is not a man. She has a value of her own. She has a creation purpose, a usefulness, all her own as designed by God. And God says in His Word that that reality is shown, is seen outwardly by the hair of her head. It shows her femininity. It shows her beauty by design. God has made it this way. Just prior to this, He said, 
He says, it, 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 does not nature itself tell you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. You could picture if we could put two people in outfits that were big and baggy and you couldn't see the shape of their body and they were turned around backwards and all you seen was a head popping up and one of them had a certain hairstyle and another one had long flowing beautiful hair, you would assume the long flowing beautiful hair belongs to a woman and if she turned around and it was a man, you would say, well, excuse me, sorry, I thought you were a woman. That's what God's Word says. A woman's hair is meant to show her beauty, her, her essence as designed by God. It is her glory. Moses said in Exodus 33, 18 and 19 to God, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So Moses wants to see the fullness of who God is and God does give him a little glimpse. He passes by, he sees something, but not much. And then God basically preaches his name, his character. Because God's glory is equal with who He is. God is His glory. The glory of God is simply to be God. But that glory is not completely hidden, altogether or utterly hidden. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when we behold Jesus Christ, we are seeing the very glory of God manifested in a quantifiable, observable way. That is human flesh. Now, we don't get to see that now because He's in heaven, but someday we will. We will look at a man, just like us, we will see His face, we will see His nose, His eyes, the pores of His skin. We'll look at a man and we will be looking at the very effulgence of the essence of God Himself in human flesh, the glory of God. And yet, even of that same man Christ Jesus, we read in 2 Peter 1.17, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, they're speaking of the transfiguration. So you remember that story of Matthew 17. When Jesus was transfigured before him, his face, it says, shone like the sun. There was something visible, observable they could see. His clothes became white as light. They could look at it. That was a little glimpse at the pure, blinding effulgence of who he really is as God the Son. His glory was shining forth. That's glory. Some outward, quantifiable usually visible manifestation of the essential worth and usefulness of a thing, the essential value of a thing. Now, our subject here is the glory of a true church. So what is the glory of a true church? Well, we could say it is the outward, quantifiable, observable manifestation, usually visible in some way manifestation, of the essential value, worth, or usefulness of that church. Something you can see and observe and watch that tells the real story of who that church is or what that church is. The glory of a church is what we can see and measure and observe that proves the true reality of what a church really is. Now, what, what is a church really? We've already read in the text. A church is the house of God. Church is the house of God. So, ultimately, I think we would say that the glory of a church is that God is there. But we're looking for something that shows that God is there. How would we know if God is there? How would we know if God is here? God is not visible. We can't say, look, there He is, over here He is. How would we know? It's God's house. How would we know if God is really present in or with a church? Well, I would suggest to you this. You would know by this. The revealed will of God is being carried out with eagerness and to the delight of the people. The revealed will of God is being carried out with eagerness and to the delight of the people. How do you know that God is present in the midst of a people? 
because His revealed will is being carried out with eagerness and to delight. So not out of obligation. Yeah, we'll do what, we'll do what God says, and then once we've done it, and we're going to complain about how off it was. No, that's, that would not be right. Where God is present, an eagerness to, to obey God leads to obeying the revealed will of God, and when we have obeyed the revealed will of God, we are delighted that we have done what God has commanded. That's how you know God is present in a place. His revealed will is being carried out with eagerness and to the delight of the people. Now, the question becomes, what is the revealed will of God for a church? The glory of a true church is ultimately that God is there. How do we know that God is there? His revealed will is being carried out. Well, how do, what, what is that revealed will? We have to have some way to quantify all of this. What is the revealed will of God for a church? Well, to use Keech's language, I think this is what he's doing from the beginning. He's going to go ahead and summarize all of this under two categories and then open that up throughout the work. God's will, His revealed will, is that a church consists consist of the right matter and form. Everything that God has said about the church for the church, to the church, commanded in the church, all of it can be summed up in the right matter and the right form. And when these are fulfilled, God's will is being carried out. When a church is made of the right matter and it, it is taking the right form, God's will is being carried out. And when God's will is being carried out with eagerness to the delight of the people, we would say God is present among those people. And when this is true of a church, it will be evident. It will be outwardly quantifiable. You will be able to say, okay, the, the Word of God says this, and we can see that you're doing that, and the people are delighted in it, they long to do it. You can, it it's not merely subjective. Well, we just think and feel like God is here or there. We, we, we go home saying, boy, it really felt like God was there. Well, I'm not saying that there are no feelings attached to or associated with the presence of God, but ultimately, feelings or no feelings, we ought to go home delighted that we have obeyed God. And that will show itself, and we will be able to say, people will be able to say, God is there. The glory, the, the matter and form is going to show that it's true. Its glory will reveal that God is there. Now, how does Keech introduce this subject? Well, now let's read together in the, the epistle to the reader. My brethren, every house or building consists both of matter and form, and so does the church of Christ or house of the living God. The matter or materials with which it is built are Lively stones, converted persons. Also, the matter and form must be according to the rule and pattern shown in the mount. I mean, Christ's institution. And in the apostolic church's constitution. And not after men's inventions. So here, Keech begins his work on the glory of a true church by using the analogy of a house or a building to introduce these two categories of matter and form. How do we know God is there? What is going to be the showing forth that God is in the midst of a people? Well, that church will consist of right matter and form. Matter or materials. When we use the construction analogy, the matter is what's used to build the house. Might be wood, might be nails, might be sheetrock, might be screws, might be shingles, might be metal. Everything that goes into building a house. All that stuff they dump off and they say, here, put this together. You'll have a house when you're done. That's the matter, the materials. Then you have the form. And this I've, I've taken the liberty to break up a little bit. Hopefully this doesn't confuse the matter more. I would, I would define the form as the way, shape, and fruit of the joining of these various materials. First of all, you have the way. How do these materials come together? How does this board connect to that board? 
How does that piece of molding connect with that piece of molding? How do the hinges on this door attach to that door frame? The way that the parts begin to come together. That leads and begins to bring out the form. How do the right parts come together? What joins them in this structure? Then you have the shape. What do they look like while they are together? Does this joint make a 90 degree angle or not? When we finish this room, is it a square or is it a rectangle? When we finish the roof, is it going to have a point at the top or is it going to be flat? While all of the parts are assembled, what do they look like? And then the fruit or the effect of their coming together. When all is done, is this a bedroom? Is this a kitchen? Is this a laundry room? Is this a basement? Is this a bathroom? Is this a front porch? What, is, what, are, we, what, are, we, what are we to use this building for? What does it do once it's completed? When the right parts are rightly joined, doing what they're supposed to do, what purpose does this structure serve? Is it a house or is it a storage building? Or is it a doctor's office? What purpose does it serve? All of that make, makes up the form of a structure. Applying this to the church, Keach starts with the matter. As to matter or materials, he says, the matter or materials with which it is built are lively stones, converted persons. So a house, materials, nails, screws, wood, shingles, metal, sheetrock, all that stuff. Church, what makes up a church? Converted people. That's what he says. Lively stones. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll see this language. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter says, As you come to Him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, or as he puts it, lively stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones, or lively stones, that is, stones that are alive with spiritual life, regenerate people. The matter of a true church is regenerate people. This is where the glory of a true church begins. Is it made of the right material? You get a big group of lost people together, unconverted people, you do not have a true church. There's no way that that can show forth the glory of God, that God is dwelling in that place. Regenerate people. Now as to form... He says, and I'm reading again, the matter and form must be according to the rule and pattern shown in the mount. I mean Christ's institution and in the apostolic church's constitution and not after men's inventions. In other words, as to the way, shape, and fruit of the church, its form, it must be according to Scripture and not man's inventions. And we've, we've covered that in previous weeks. Scripture is the revealed will of God. So I think Keach would agree with me when I, I said earlier that the revealed will of God carried out with eagerness to the delight of the people is evidence of God's presence among them. As to their form, are they conducting themselves according to the Word of God? Why are they doing it? Because they want to. Well, what happens after they've done it? They're all happy. That's evidence that God is dwelling in their midst. And so there must be strict adherence to the Word of God in all church matters, as he uses the illustration of Mount Sinai, according to the pattern shown on the mount. Moses did not come down and say, okay, God said A, B, and C. We're going to do that, but we're also going to add A.2, B.4, and C.7. No, he says this is what God has revealed. This is what we will do. The form. Getting the form. Maintaining the form is going to be the subject of most of this book. Not, not so much the matter, converted persons. He, he lays that out at the beginning. You want regenerate church membership, then we're going to move to form. How do we maintain, get and maintain that form that God has prescribed? Now I'll continue reading the next paragraph. He says, 
because the typical church of the Jews was national and took in their carnal seed as such, therefore some men expect to find the same matter and form under the gospel. Stop there. He, he's, now he's saying, he's stating a belief that is contrary to what he just taught. He says, because the typical church of the Jews was national and took in their carnal seed as such. So notice he assumes what we have said before, that Israel under the old covenant is the typical church or the typological church. Israel was a type of the church. And in Israel, in the nation of Israel, their carnal seed, that is their biological offspring, as such, as biological offspring, were born naturally into that people. So if an Israelite had a baby, that baby was a Israelite. They're born into the covenant community. And what he's saying is, some people think, and this is Pedobaptists, they think that the church today is the same. That if a believer has a child, that child is born into the church. They come out of the womb, the, the nurse takes the baby, cuts the cord, wipes it off, and we have a church member. That's how it was with Israel, and many believe that that's how it is with the church. Well, he's already stated the opposite. The matter or materials with which it is built are lively stones or converted persons. So we, we do not necessarily believe that a, a, a biological birth produces a church member. We would say spiritual birth produces a church member because the church is a spiritual body, not a biological body. And you will often hear our Pado-Baptist brethren say, well, because they believe that the old covenant was basically synonymous with the new covenant, they would say God made that covenant with believers and their offspring. We're in the new covenant now where the covenant is made with believers and their offspring. To which you can respond, God has never made a covenant with believers and their offspring, ever. God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, believers or unbelievers, they were a part of the covenant. And with us, believers and spiritual believers. We could say spiritual offspring, those who are born again, but not biological offspring. Born again people are the only right matter for a true church. So introducing this topic, the glory of a true church, he starts by saying that you must have the right matter and form. Both matter and form must be according to the institution of Christ and His Word. And as to matter, a true church must be made of only converted people. Now, that's basically all keech. I want to go to the Scriptures and see if this is what we find. And I want to look at those two scriptures that we read uh, at the beginning that are at the top of the page of this book. Uh, so you can turn now to 1 Timothy 3, 15, or you can just look at it there in the booklet if you'd like. Uh, these texts were not included in the original pinning of this work by Keech. They, they, they were added probably by Chapel Library, but ironically, I think they stand... Uh, to vindicate what he's saying here from the very outset. What I want to do is look at these two texts and draw out some truths from each of them, then put them back together. And I think that we'll see how they enforce what Keech has just said. 1 Timothy 3.15 If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We've looked at this text in, in recent weeks, but we'll look at it again. <clears throat> Here we have in this passage the obligation, designation, and function of the church. First, we have an obligation that you may know how one ought to behave. Remember that, the divine ought, an obligation. The saints have an obligation on them to conduct themselves in a certain way in the church. We don't get to say, I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. No, we have an obligation from God. We've already seen that. Then we have the designation. The church is called the household of God. 
which is the church of the living God. So the church is God's house. God is the living God. And therefore the church is not an outdated relic in honor of an ancient mythical deity. The church is the dwelling place of the one true and living God. It is the household or house of God. Then we see the function of the church. The church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. The function of the church is to hold up and hold forth the truth of the gospel. A true church is a testimony to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that this passage basically sums up the concept of the form, way, shape, and fruit of the church. Think about it this way. In light of that designation given to the church, the household of God, the church must see to it that it fulfills its obligation to God in order to fulfill its function under God. A church cannot perform its function, pillar and buttress of the truth, if it ignores its obligation, how it ought to behave. Why is that? Well, because it's the house of God. The house of God has to do what God says in order to fulfill what God designed it to be. The church is God's house. The church must behave according to God's rules. And when it does that, it will fulfill its God-given function. It will be a pillar and buttress of the truth as long as we do what God has commanded. And in all of that, it will maintain its proper form. So that's that passage. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Textual variations and variants pervade the book of Acts, and especially these early chapters, and that's why there's differences of readings. Uh, but I think that we'll see that when it comes to substance, we, we have the same. So verse 41, I'll read the whole of verse 41. Luke here sums up the matter of the church. Peter has just preached, and we read in verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now again, the authorized version reads that they were added, uh, well maybe not in that passage, but but later on it'll, it'll fill that out a little bit more. But some people were added. I want to pay most of our attention to what it says about these people. What happened to these people? What kind of people are these that were added? Well, first it says that they received His, that is, Peter's word. So Peter's just preached a gospel sermon, and that sermon was met with a favorable, welcoming reception, as it says in the Authorized, they gladly received His Word. Romans 8, 7, and 8 says that it is impossible for an unregenerate person to do that. They cannot submit to God's law. They will not. So these people, at the moment that they gladly receive the Word, they have already been born again by the Spirit of God through Peter's preaching. So they received His Word and were baptized. Now it doesn't say, or they didn't say, hey, I've come to get baptized. It says that these people were baptized passively. They received baptism. It happened to them. They didn't come and do it. They received what we call in the ordinance of baptism. So these people who were, as far as we can tell, uh, based on other texts, and it's not mentioned here, but they were born again by God's Spirit. They received Peter's preaching gladly. They were then subject to the ordinance of baptism. These are the people who were added. Now look at verse 47. The end of that verse, we have a parallel statement. And the Lord added to their number, or again, here's uh, it reads in the authorized, the Lord added to the church day by day those who were being saved. 
And again, I take this as practically, if you lay these verses beside each other, these parts, practically parallel statements with minor variations that, that fill out the idea that's being uh, put forth. Showing more or less the same reality taking place over time from the divine perspective. But notice here, who is doing the adding? The Lord added to their number. Or the Lord added to the church. God is the one doing the adding. Now, again, the, the one reading would read literally, the Lord added to them or added to together, the group. Another reading added to the church. But as we read through the book of Acts, we see what's happening here. In 432, we, we have a reference to the number of those who believed. In 514, believers were added to the Lord. That's, that's pretty specific. 6-1, the disciples were increasing in number. 6-7, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. When we put all of this together, it is clear what's happening. God is adding to His church. That's what's happening. Who got added? Based on verse 47, those who were being saved were added to the church. These are what we would call Christian people. The saints, the saved or converted persons were added. And again, if, if you take these two texts as parallels, then receiving the word with gladness and being saved are basically synonymous statements. Not exactly, but near parallels. Two sides of the same coin. If a person is, is converted, is saved, they're going to receive the word with gladness. That, that goes together. And then also, being baptized and being added to the church are also synonymous statements. They go together. How were they added? What was the process? Shove them under the water and pull them out. They're added. And we could deduce from these this all, all kinds of things that there, they, they counted, there were numbers, there were records, they knew how many. It, they didn't just say, well, it looks like about 3,000. They knew there were records. They were added to this number of the, the church. Now, if we put what we see in 1 Timothy right here beside what we see in Acts 2, we'd have to say, number one, only those added to the church by the Lord can truly be called the household of God. Number two, only those added by the Lord can meet the obligations of right behavior, how one ought to behave. That one, how one ought to behave, well, that has to be a believer. An unbeliever can't behave properly in the house of God. And thirdly, only those added by the Lord can fulfill the proper function of the church. A church can't be a pillar and buttress of the truth if it's made of unconverted people. So these, the point of all of that being, these two texts would concur with Keech as he begins to lay out or set the stage for this work. And he says, you've got to have first the right matter in the right form. Who makes up the church and what the church does? God's Word confirms it must be converted person, persons, lively stones, and they must do what God has commanded. And that will ultimately be the true glory of the church. Matter and form conformed to God's revealed will, we could say, shines forth the glory of a true church. Well, let's continue reading. He says, but, this is partway through that second paragraph, but, though a church be rightly built on, in both these respects, Sorry, I lost my place. In both these respects of fit matter and right form, yet without a regular and orderly discipline, it will soon lose its beauty and be polluted. What's he saying? Well, he's saying a church might have these things in order. You might begin with the right matter in the right form. You might set all that out from the start. But these things have to be maintained. They have to be kept up. This, this is not an energizer bunny. You just wind up and turn loose. It has to be maintained. These things have to be kept up or the glory will no longer shine forth of God's presence. It will lose its beauty. Beauty is another word synonymous with glory. So what is it that is used to maintain this glory? Well, he says, without a regular and orderly discipline, it will soon lose its beauty and be polluted. So he's saying, again, it's not enough to start off right. It has to be kept up. Okay, Pastor Keach. What do we do to keep it up? He says, regular and orderly 
discipline will keep up the beauty and glory of the church. Now, that's very contrary to the way that we typically think. When we hear church discipline, we, we think well, that, that's of that last resort that we apply when things get really hairy with a particular individual. What Keach is saying is that church discipline is what has been prescribed by God to make sure that the church is always made of the right matter in the right form. Church discipline, then, is a matter of God's glory being displayed in the church. <coughs> Let's continue reading the next paragraph. He says, It is true, many reverend divines of the congregational way have written most excellently upon the subject of church discipline, but the books are so voluminous that the poor cannot purchase them, and many others have not time or learning enough to improve them to their profit. Now throughout this work, and if you've already been reading it, you've seen it, but throughout this work, he's going to make references to John Owen. He'll quote Owen. He's, he'll make references to a man he calls Dr. Chauncey, Isaac Chauncey. These are Congregationalists, uh, not Presbyterians, but Congregational uh, Paedobaptists. The form uh, of government and church order of the Congregationalists was what the Baptists took their cues from. They learned from the Congregationalists. The Baptists were much more in line with them. And so he's saying, a lot of these other guys have written a lot more on this. I'm just going to basically summarize it and get to the point for poor, simple-minded people. And he tells there in the footnote a little bit about a Congregationalist or Congregationalism or Independency. It says, Congregationalism arose in England in the 16th century and influenced the development of the particular Baptists, among whom Benjamin Keach was a prominent leader. Congregationalism, unlike Presbyterianism, taught that each local church or each local congregation, not its elders alone, had the divine right under Christ's authority to entire independence in governing its affairs. But like the Presbyterians, it retained the practice of infant sprinkling. So the Congregationalists were paid a Baptist, but when it came to church order and government, they said, no, it's not the elders all by themselves who rule the thing. It's the, the congregation has its own authority. And we, we would say even uh, beyond that, Presbyterians have uh, levels of government outside of the local church, the presbytery and, and so forth, that can exercise authority in a particular church. Whereas the Congregationalists and the Baptists after them would say, no, there's no body outside of this church that can tell this church what to do. The congregation, as a congregation, has its own personal, uh, we could say, private authority. The local church as a body is its own authority under Christ. Now, some have mistakenly taken this to mean that uh, the, the term congregational means that the whole congregation makes every decision or that the whole congregation is involved in all church matters or that we have to have business meetings and vote on anything and everything that happens in a church. They say, well, we're not congregational. Does, does everybody not get together and do everything? That's, that's not congregationalism. Congregationalism is set in opposition to Presbyterianism, which has levels of hierarchy and leadership, and the elders have the final say in all matters. Um, congregational means no, the church by itself doesn't have, it does have its own authority. Outsiders can't enforce anything in a particular congregation. The easiest way to, to put it is this the congregation does the things that the congregation is called to do, and the elders do the things which the elders are called to do. And there is a power, and we'll see this as we go through it, there is a power vested in each. Congregation has an authority. Elders have an authority. It's different. They each have their own spheres of working. And, but nobody outside of the congregation can come into that congregation and say, listen, we are over you and we tell you you have to do this, this, and this. No, that, that's what would be opposed to congregationalism. No other outside body or group can exercise power in a local church except those in and or approved by that church. So we do lean on and learn much from the Congregationalists, and, and as we go through this, I'll be quoting from and referencing these men. I, I had never heard of Isaac Chauncey before, looked him up. He's got a, a, a manual on church order and government. Absolutely 
fascinating material. These guys went through and crossed every T, dotted every I. They mapped out. They answered questions. If you've got questions on things, these guys have answered them. It's, it's unbelievable. But what Keech is saying is people can't afford those big books. And most, if people can't afford them, most people can't make use of them anyway. So I'm going to write it simple and plain. That's what he's doing here. But the books are so voluminous that the poor cannot purchase them, and many others have not time or learning enough to improve them to their profit. He goes on to say, As I can gather, our brethren the Baptists have not written on this subject by itself. Therefore, our members and one of our pastors have earnestly asked me to write a small and plain tract concerning the rule and discipline of a gospel church so that all men may not only know our faith but see our order in this case also. True, this, though plain, is quite short, but perhaps it may provoke some other persons to do it more fully. Certainly ignorance of the rules of discipline causes no small trouble and disorders in our churches. If this may be a prevention or prove profitable to any, let God have the glory, and I have my end, who am yours, Benjamin Keach, August 1697. So they came to him, they said, uh, Mr. Keach, we know you're not busy and you got all this time on your hand. Why don't you write us a little book? And that's what he's done here. Our dear brother set out to write something short, simple, and accessible for those of the Baptist way. And, and he does say that ignorance of the rules of discipline causes no small trouble and disorders in our churches. He wanted to protect churches in a time when Baptist churches were in very short supply and persecuted. And that's why he wrote. So in conclusion, what is Keech doing in this book? He's describing the revealed will of God for the right matter and form of a true church. He's answering questions like, who makes up the church? How do these people come together as a church? What do they look like while they're together? If you've, if you've begun to read it, you can even see in the the table of contents, the chapters are things like of the work of a pastor, of the work of deacons, duty of church members to the pastor, reception of members, the authority of church discipline, church censures. He's answering these very simple questions. What does it look like when a church comes together as a church? What is the fruit and product of their being joined together as a church? How can these things be maintained over the long life of a true church? Most of us have not come out of churches um, and this could be a good sign and also maybe a bad sign, depending on how you think about it. But most of us have not come out of backgrounds where we see church discipline just happening every week. We, we see this stuff played out all the time. We're like, oh yeah, we got this. We've, we've seen this done for years. We know how this how it's worked. Most of us have not been that way. Most churches are not that way. Historically, even, it wasn't just all the time that you're going through this type of stuff. And uh, that's why there are, are books of church order and things like that where they would put these things together. Again, why is Keach doing this? Because when these things are true of a church and are maintained in a church according to the revealed will of God, out of eagerness in the people and to, to their delight, it's proof that God is there. It is proof of their true glory. 